This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant.ca is a website dedicated to sharing good ideas for farmers and gardeners. At the Ruminant, you can find past episodes of this podcast, essays I've written, a few book reviews, and a whole lot of photo-based blog posts, some of which were made by me and some of which were submitted by you. So I hope you'll check it out, theruminant.ca. And if you want to get a hold of me, editor at theruminant.ca or at ruminantblog on Twitter. Okay, let's do this show. Hey folks, so for this episode, I have two interviews for you that came as a result of some cold calling I did to, uh, to different farmers around British Columbia. The first interview you're going to hear makes a nice compliment to last week's segment with Dan Brisbois on the efforts that they've done at, made at his farm to mulch their pathways with landscape fabric. Uh, for this segment, we're going to be hearing from Delaney Zayak of Icecap Organics in the Pemberton Valley of British Columbia. And he and his wife invested in a piece of equipment for their tractor that allows them to chop up baled straw and kind of shoot that out off the back of the tractor to very efficiently lay down chopped up straw, either in the pathways or on their beds. And I'll leave it at that because, uh, well, we have a whole interview about that. But it's a, it's a pretty cool way to to both mulch and ultimately add organic matter to uh, to the soil. The second interview is with Andrea Gunner of Rosebank Farms, which is a pastured poultry farm uh, a little north of me uh, in the northern Okanagan Valley in British Columbia. And Andrea is both a farmer and an agrologist and economist. And she wanted to share an insight she's made in the last few years she and her partner um, face production restrictions in British Columbia that limit the amount of poultry they can produce in a single year. So a solution to that, given that the demand is really high and that they have a lot of um, costs associated with uh, obtaining feed and processing, uh, was to partner with other farmers in the area uh, to form kind of a loosely based cooperative uh, that has solved some of those challenges. And if that doesn't make sense, it'll make more sense when you hear from Andrea. So this is kind of the type of episode you'll, you'll probably be getting from the ruminant here and there uh, over the next little while. It's a little bit easier for me to produce while I'm working on some of the longer form interviews that you're used to to hearing here. So I hope you like this. I think this is going to be cool as I share episodes like this. Um, this is This is a big part of what I want the ruminant to be about. I just want to talk to other farmers like you uh, and, and try and gain uh, some of the insights that, that my colleagues have made uh, as they go about their own farming. So if you have something uh, worth sharing, uh, some good idea that you tried out in the last year or two that you think other farmers would want to know about, I hope you'll get a hold of me, editor at theruminant.ca, or you can text me at 250-767-6636, uh, and I can get a hold of you, uh, or call my Skype number and leave a message. 310-734-8426. So that's about it. I'm a little short on time. Things are a little hectic around here because uh, about two months ago, I got a call from a woman organizing an event as part of the Okanagan Wine Festival. Uh, It is a Friday night wine tasting event uh, at which for the first time this year, they're going to be also including farmers market stalls. Uh, I fought on the phone with this woman for, I don't know, five minutes. 
uh, I was pretty insistent that I didn't see the value proposition that I can't imagine that people who are shelling out $65 to attend a wine tasting event on a Friday night are going to be all that interested in buying produce. Uh, she insisted uh, that I'm incorrect and that I'd be able to sell a lot of produce. Also that it would be a great opportunity to promote my farm. So anyway, that's an extra market to go uh, to go to attend this week. And uh, we are trying to be, um, well, make the best of, a, of what will probably be a bad situation uh, by, by doing some value added stuff. Um, we're going to make little cups of uh, basically carrot sticks and some icicle radishes. Um, they'll sit in a little transparent cup with a little dollop of like a parsley drizzle or dip at the bottom of the cup and we'll sell those for two bucks and uh you know a little bit of value added action for these people who are really just there to taste wine and maybe they can walk around um and eat radishes and parsley drizzle but anyway uh it's just made things really busy here so this is kind of a throw together episode i hope i think it's pretty good though i'm really grateful to andrea and to delaney for getting on the phone with me so thanks to both of them and we're going to start with my interview with delaney Okay, everybody, talk to you at the end. Okay, I'm Delaney Zayak, and uh, my wife and I own and operate Ice Cap Organics. Uh, we're a five-acre vegetable farm in the Pemberton Valley. Um, we sell all our veggies at farmer's markets in Vancouver and a local CSA. Um, yeah, and we've been in business six years now. Yeah, totally. Um, well, we've always struggled to increase our organic matter on our farm because we we do about five acres of veggies and we we have about five acres. So we're not hopping our veggie plot all over the place and, and building cover crop, organic matter through cover crop all the time. So so we're pretty much planting every part of our field every year and we just find it hard to, to get the organic matter um, the same or, or, or to build it up. Can, can, so, I, can, I, can I interrupt and just kind of yeah. clarify a bit? So I imagine then part of the problem is you're probably getting on lots of the beds more than one crop a year, and it's not leaving you a lot of time to plant a cover crop and actually have that grow out. Uh, to exactly. A, okay, yeah. I, I think, yeah. I think yeah. a lot of us with small farms face that problem. Um, yeah, and, and it just with the weather too, right? Like sometimes you'll pull your crop in and you'll want to put a cover crop down, but it'll just rain for like the entire month of October and then you just won't get anything in and then things freeze up and then you just have bare ground for a long time. So, I, I mean, this year it's been pretty good because we've had such a sunny, nice uh, end of summer and into fall. So we've had lots of time to cover crop. But but anyways, we even even with a little cover crop here and there, we still are planting several crops per bed per year, so the soil is getting tilled a lot, and we just we, we're always fighting to get organic matter up. So we we did a lot of research and reading and poking around, and and we figured that mulching with with straw might be a good good idea. So um, after talking to a few other farmers and and reading a bit of uh, a few, I don't know. Uh, testimonials online and whatnot we decided to jump in and we bought a, a, a bale chopper like a straw blower uh, bale chopper which was a bit of an investment but it's just been amazing we've been able to blow hundreds of bales of straw onto our five acres and um, where we have used it correctly and put a lot of straw down it's been really good for weed suppression and moisture retention and uh, now 
as the straw is breaking down and I'm, I've tilled those beds in, I'm seeing a lot of, of good organic pattern building up in there. So that's been my biggest favorite improvement on the farm. Okay, well, I'm really interested to ask you a few follow-up questions. So let's start with the piece of equipment that you bought. Is this uh, a tractor, tractor mounted piece, like a PTO driven piece? Yeah, yeah, it goes on the three-point hitch and, and it's PTO driven. Um, and uh, basically it, it can only use square bales, not round bales. So it's kind of a smaller farm sort of tool. Um, and you just, uh, you, you feed the bale in and it spins the bale around on a bunch of knives that are also spinning. And then there's a huge fan that uh, blows the chopped straw out, either a spout or you can put a, uh, a really, like an eight or 10 inch hose on it. Uh, so it chops the straw up into about two inch pieces and blows them out in in sort of a controllable direction like it kind of goes everywhere but you can control where it goes right and then the so the concept is just that you're breaking it the straw down into much smaller pieces so that it breaks down uh there's more surface area so that it breaks down more quickly yeah so that i mean in terms of organic matter alone you could probably get away with just throwing a bunch of straw in your field um but in terms of weed weed suppression it's much much better to have chopped straw than just uh flakes of straw bales yeah, uh, and also just the the labor time. Like if you work it out over five or ten years or so, if you're going to be doing several acres of, of mulching, um, you pay the machine off in no time. Uh, just from for how fast? Like it blows a bale of straw out in like a minute and a half or two minutes or something. Okay, so can can you can get you get a, can you be a bit more specific about how you use the machine, including the timing, what time of year you're using it, and where you're putting that straw? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so well, we just planted some of our garlic and we'll be finished planting our garlic in the next week or so. And, uh, I will take the tractor down each bed. It'll, the tractor will straddle each bed of garlic and, uh, we'll just, um, coat the whole garlic area with, with straw. So walkways included. Uh, so there'll be like a foot or so of straw covering the entire um, area that the garlic's planted in. Then in the spring, um, that garlic will, will be well covered so it'll hold the weeds down and keep the moisture in and we'll, we'll probably have to go through and and make sure some, each of the garlic are poking out through the straw but usually it works pretty well they they poke out on their own um so that's that's sort of the fall application but then in the spring we're using it on a lot of other crops too like squash brassicas even beds that we use like a biotello or a plastic mulch we'll use the mulch on the bed top and then the straw in the walkways um, pretty much anything we we uh, transplant, we would consider using straw with, and then direct seed stuff not so much. Now, did you have any concerns, Delaney? I, I mean, a very common concern I think, or that would arise from with anyone hearing this is, did you have yeah. concerns about? Um, I mean, a common criticism or concern about about uh, living mulches that are really yeah. high in carbon is that they're going to tie up. Uh, soil nitrogen and other nutrients as as microorganisms are breaking it down did you have that concern and have you seen that be a problem yeah yeah uh, I've I read a bit about that and I I don't think it will be a problem I think that we we keep our soil um, nutrient levels high enough sort of amending with lots of compost and, and whatnot I don't I don't think it'll be a problem I think it'll probably in the long run it'll be good um, one concern was weed seeds uh, if you get straw with weeds or if you, or if just you get hay that has viable seed heads already formed, it, it could be a real nightmare. Um, obviously that wouldn't be 
what you want. And then the other thing is a lot of people said to watch out for, like you're sort of creating a home for slugs and, and voles and mice and that sort of thing. So that hasn't been a problem as of yet, but it could be. Mm-hmm. That could be a problem. This machine, so you bought it for, for a, a regular tractor. What, what Can you share the brand and, and the price? Yeah, they go for about five grand, and they're um, uh, uh, Harper Goosen is the manufacturer, and um, it, it's uh, it's it goes on the three point hitch, yeah, and it, it lifts up like it doesn't have its own wheels or anything like that. I had to order it from um, well, Harper Goosen is an American manufacturer, and there's an outfit in Surrey that that uh, distributes them, I guess. Right. Yeah, and they have a bunch of different sizes. They have some that are trailers with their own motors that are a lot more money, but this one was the. Yeah, and then do you, do you, it sounds like you need a second operator, someone driving and someone operating the machine and pointing the hose or whatever. Or do I have yeah, if if you're using the hose, then you definitely need a second operator. But if you're using the spout, there's like a directional spout that you can sort of turn from the tractor seat. So it's not so bad if, if, you're, if you're not being really particular about where the straw goes and if you're just kind of liberally putting it everywhere, then you could just do it by yourself. But if you're being particular, like say you've got a squash bed planted and you want to go and, and blow mulch right up to the squash, then you would have someone uh, operating the hose, basically. And, and you could actually fill a bed in except for where the actual squash plant is with it, with it if someone's operating the hose. It's accurate enough to do that. And now I have to assume, Delaney, that you have, um, in, in deciding whether to invest in this equipment... I have to assume that in the past, to meet this challenge, you were de- you were trying you were bringing in compost um, totally. and applying compost. So, so could you talk a bit about that, and then talk about the cost comparison of bringing in compost versus straw? Um, we will still continue to bring lots of compost in, um, but but hopefully over the long term, not as much. So. Uh, we, we've also used manure and tried to compost it ourselves and try, try to get more organic matter that way. But we found that manure was really inconsistent in terms of fertility and mm-hmm. there was also weed seeds in it. So we've moved to more compost um, that's made by a professional compost maker that we're lucky enough to have here like 20 minutes from our farm. Um, and they, they're certified organic and good to go and they use um, food waste and, and uh, municipal um, trimmings basically mm-hmm. from landscaping and that stuff is amazing it's just such a wonderful amendment uh the veggies just love it and it it's mild enough that you can put lots on and and build your organic matter and and not overpower the nutrient balances in the soil um so so yeah even even with this straw i i still i think for what we're doing for growing lots of vegetables intensively um i would still use i would still amend with compost right but then you're you're just seeing an added benefit in also doing the mulch just for more organic matter ultimately but also for weed suppression yeah yeah and i mean the organic matter is something that i can't really put enough um compost on to to really get there like i can buy say just to put a number a thousand dollars gives me you know a couple hundred bales of straw um and I, I don't think I, I would even come close to that amount of organic matter in that in that amount of uh, compost in a thousand dollars worth of compost. So right. it's it's sort of like it's a better bang for my buck in terms of the organic matter, and then also the added benefit of the weed suppression and the moisture retention. I think I really once the straw is wetted down, 
I really feel like it's keeping moisture in there and there's wonderful things going on in the uh, layer in between the mineral soil and the the straw. There's right. a lot of good going on there. Uh, so so are yeah. you by the way are you irrigating mostly drip? Like is there so are you laying down drip and then putting this uh, mulch over top or are you overhead it's watering in some places on these crops? Both. Definitely both. There's we do a mix on our farm like some crops we find do better with drip, some crops where I want to um, inject like um, fish emulsion or just different kinds of amendments, uh, liquid amendments, then I'll, I'll use drip if I'm doing that. But I prefer to use overhead because then I don't have to uh, deal with the drip after the season's done. Because mm-hmm. inevitably with drip, you either have to find a way to roll it up and bring it in and then you try to reuse it the next year or you just uh, throw it all out, which just doesn't feel right. It sucks, so, yeah. We've, we try to reuse our drip year after year, but inevitably it gets plugged up and some of it just gets lots of holes and gets damaged. So, yeah, we use drip sparingly and then we use overhead. I think that's partly because we have sort of an endless aquifer under our valley here that we farm in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't. It's not surface water. Pemberton is more of a place where we're about flooding and having too much water rather than running out of water. So uh, I know drip's a lot more efficient but i mean it, it depends what as you say what region you're in uh you're in a region where there there isn't quite that that pressure to conserve yeah <laughs> uh but i the one reason i ask is so then it sounds like you've done some overhead watering under this system and it that's fine in terms of in terms of the mulch getting wet from above and everything that that hasn't caused any problems for you yeah so. well you gotta you gotta water more it actually did kind of catch me by surprise i thought i was watering enough at first um, mm-hmm. Then I realized mostly I was just saturating the straw and it wasn't getting down into the zone of the, of the plants. So once I figured that out, then I got the straw nice and wet and then the water starts dripping through the right. straw. Right. So once, once you get the soil watered, it's going to, it's, it's not going to evaporate anywhere near as quickly because of the straw, but you do have to water more when you're watering. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly it. You got to water like crazy at first, get it all really wet. And then I find it's, it's really noticeable. Like you can peel the straw back and it's nice and moist soil whereas a bed right beside it that doesn't have the straw will be just dried right out boy when i think of anyone who grows garlic on any kind of scale so let's say an acre of garlic a year and above who is who are who are still spreading straw out by hand that that's got to be a real labor savings that machine that you've oh it's it's huge for that i think we're we're not that big of a garlic farm like we do maybe like a sixth of an acre acre or something yeah that's yeah uh, Still it, but it's yeah. still even just garlic alone it still feels like it's a good idea but i think if you're doing a half an acre or an acre of garlic holy man get get a straw blower it'll just save you so much money in terms of labor and your mulch will be so much more effective when it's chopped up really small like that so this and then i we're, we can wind down pretty quick here uh delaney but this this machine is developed for square bales of i guess straw yeah. and hey it's not gonna it's not a chipper that you're gonna you can you can choose your source material correct only straw or hay okay. it's got to be a baled material like that and only square bales but there is round bale choppers out there um i didn't even consider them because it's just not even in my scale of operation but, but i know other people do 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 it yeah. yeah okay well no this is this was great this is so awesome delaney thank you um thank you so much for for sharing yeah, my pleasure. That's that's great. I'd love for more people to know about this and use it because I'd like to, to hear more and more stories about it. Like I think mulching is just such a crucial way that we can build soil quality. And as organic farmers that are kind of struggling with smaller chunks of land, it's one of the best tools we have, right? So yeah, cool. Thanks, great.
All right, so for this next segment, I talked to Andrea Gudner, who faced some challenges that she thought could be solved by partnering with other farmers uh, on the production of pastured poultry. Here's Andrea. Yeah, so the farm, we started farming this piece of property in 1993 or 94. We bought it in 92, and it is a piece of glacial till. It's kind of um, got interesting topography, which is what we liked. We basically bought the most land we could afford that we thought was also saleable, that we could make into something and sell it for more money than we paid for it, which is true because by trying a number of different crop and livestock combinations, what we settled on as the thing that makes us a reasonable amount of money with a reasonable amount of labor is pastured poultry. So we do chickens and turkeys on probably about half of the nine acres that we have. So some of the property is treed and we like running the animals um, under the trees in the heat of the summer. In the spring, the whole farm is green and so what we do is we run them on the hillsides on the top because there's hardly any or there was hardly any soil on those hillsides as i said it's glacial till and by running poultry chickens and turkeys in an intensive rotational grazing system we rotate them with horses um it is building topsoil at a discernible rate. It's actually kind of a miracle because it's also getting rid of a a lot of the sort of toxic, noxious weeds that we have just by improving the soil tilth and fertility. So that's something that we've learned over the past 20 years or so. The thing that has shifted for us in the last couple of years and has been such a... um, not maybe a complete revelation, but such an inspiration, is that we've partnered with younger farmers. So because we have got a limited land base and because the Chicken Marketing Board restricts non-quota holders to to 2,000 birds a year, and because my husband and I want to continue to eat well when we're in our senior years, we've been able to connect with and mentor a number of, I would say, new farmers. They're not all young, but the farmers that have come forward, people who've come forward who want to get into farming, who want to do something in an ecologically sensitive, healthy way, um, have sort of come under our wing, and so we're mentoring a number of farms. I'm trying to think one, two, three, four, five at current count who use our system of production, um, our feed, because we've got our our own feed mill in partnership with one of the young farmers, and because we've got a processing facility as well. And so that has been, that's been really like a, it's been a revelation and it's been an inspiration to work with people who are committed to the same kind of need and desire for constant innovation for making sure that we're paying attention to the details and questioning what we're doing and finding ways of making it better. And as a farmer who's been doing this for 
20 odd years working with new farmers has been it's just been like such an energy boost to find like-minded people we've got tons of customers that appreciate what we're doing but to find other producers who want to emulate what we've been doing and take it beyond is just it's really exciting it's so amazing um so andrea if i could interrupt then uh, i just want to i want to kind of unpack a, a few of the things you said you mentioned that you have faced a limit of 2,000 birds a year because of um, marketing regulations in British Columbia. Uh, so it sounds like you had extra capacity on the farm and that I think it sounds like what you're implying is that uh, by, by taking on uh, new farmers and mentoring them, they can have their own business on your farm and therefore they have their own quota and it, effectively it's helping raise the, um, the, uh, the, the number of birds that can be raised on the farm each year. Do I have that right? No, um, it's actually it's slightly different than that. So they take on, they apply for a permit from the Chicken Marketing Board, and they are raising birds under our management guidance, mm-hmm. um, but on their own farm, but using our system, how, how we've evolved an, a day-range system. And so what we're doing is we're putting more land into production, and we are rehabilitating more land, not just our own farm, which it's it's quite an amazing what it looked like before and what it looks like now, um, but doing that on on other land as well. Some of that land has been well managed over the past you know couple of decades, but some of it has been really really badly degraded, and so those farms are seeing the same kind of response from the land to having intensive rotational grazing from poultry on it as ours has had. So we're actually we're improving the landscape. Okay, so Andrea, it, it, it's clear to me, talking to you, that, that one big benefit for you, as you've basically articulated, is that it's just really meaningful for you to both mentor younger farmers uh, and to see and, and to and to um, share your knowledge in a way that helps improve marginal land around you. Um, but what about, I mean, my first question was about how your business has changed in a positive way. Like, could you talk about the tangible benefits to your business of, of um, deciding to, to mentor younger or new farmers in this way? We had decided to do that because we were at a marketing, um, we were at a production capacity level that we had market beyond what our mandated production capacity was. And then with the change in organic feed prices and the um, the availability, because there's been so much consolidation in the feed industry, it was harder and harder to get good quality organic grain at a reasonable price that we could still sell our product. We have great customers that are really supportive, but everybody has a food budget. And our philosophy is to try and make the best quality food available at reasonable prices, not to price gouge anybody. And so by having some some partnerships, some collaborations, because we had more market than we have production capacity for, that also meant that we could partner and establish a feed mill, which would be milling organic grain and actually work with local organic greener, grain producers to, to grow for us. So we buy a lot from the local area as well as from Saskatchewan and Alberta but being part of that rebuilding the traditional multifaceted economy 
the other part of that is none of this works without processing. And we had gone into a partnership in 2012 with three other farms in establishing a licensed mobile poultry processing facility. That unfortunately came kind of to an end over last winter when all of those other farmers wanted to wanted to sell their shares in the unit and then turned down our offer to buy it. So we were stuck without processing and the whole rebuilding the infrastructure of the economy doesn't work if you don't have a way to get um, as Steve said, you you can't sell you pluck chickens. You can sell you pick blueberries, but you cannot sell you pluck chickens. Right. So this so, is, yeah, so going into because we've got some some experience behind us with working with some of these farmers, um, going into a partnership with them on building a new processing facility seemed like a good idea and actually has been an excellent idea because we've built a really great facility. Oh, so this isn't the mobile unit. This is not just like repurposed, the repurposed mobile unit. This is a new one. Uh, we've built a new one. Wow. Yeah, so, okay. So, so just having, so, so, I mean, just to summarize, you were in a situation where you were at your limit for what you were legally allowed to produce. The, the, the demand for your product or, or related products exceeded supply. Uh, you had, um, I assume, I mean, to, to, to build that processing facility just on the strength of your own production numbers couldn't be done. And and plus, you, you face challenging economics in terms of purchasing feed and high-quality feed, all of which is somewhat improved when you, you start partnering with other farmers. And it sounds like trading your mentorship and support uh, for, for what they're bringing to the table, which is solving some of the problems I just mentioned. It's really, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's really interesting. It's, uh, it's bringing the economies of scale, but spreading them out rather than concentrating them all within our control. It's spreading out that control. And, and the really, like I said, the really inspiring part of that is finding people that have taken what we've learned and are constantly bringing new ideas and new new research, new innovation into it, and then all of us sort of sharing what we find in our own productive practices. And because Stephen and I go around on a, on a rotation of visiting all these other farms, and so we're acting as our own extension agents as well. Wow. And so I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you think of an example of, of, of an insight you gained from one of these newer farmers in terms of the fresh ideas or perspective they brought, or is that kind of hard to do on the spot? There are some things that we have that are still under under development. Um, so look at, looking at protein sources, for instance, in the in the feed mill, um, certainly the system of brooding the chicks and how we're doing that. Um, we've gone to a different brooder a different brooder type and know that the the best way to do it would have been to put in ground heating for the for the chicks when they're in the brooder. We haven't done that, but one of our one of our um, mentored farms has done that, and it has reduced their mortality at the chick stage and improved their improved their final weights and their feed to weight gain ratio. 
Oh, right on. Great, great example. So that's, that's been a really good one. We've adapted that somehow. We weren't able to, to completely restructure our existing barns, unfortunately. But certainly passing that on to other, other farmers that's coming, that are coming within our mentorship program. The importance of, of treating the birds properly in that brooder stage can't be overemphasized. Ah, so, okay, so look, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, Andrew, but I, I was wondering if we could just finish by with me asking you um, uh, just to share some insight about about finding the people to work with because, uh, understandably, there's a lot of people who perhaps think they want to farm and farm, say, pasture, pasture poultry, but they're not ultimately the right people because they, they were unrealistic versus, versus the people that are going to be in it for the long haul. Um, do you have any advice for people in your position or advice for the young or new farmer looking to find someone like you? I think for people in our position, a lot of what I believe, Jordan, is actually about attitude. The Without that attitude of, of being committed to constant innovation and constant improvement, it's not going to work. Um, but then the other part, of course, is having the resources. So that's, that's kind of an... an easy one to set out if you have those criteria when we meet with somebody if they don't have the attitude it doesn't matter what resources they're bringing to bear and if they do have the attitude we can make the resources work the resources are secondary they're important but they are really not as important as the attitude so it's it's pretty easy to tell given that criteria it's pretty easy to tell within the first half hour whether there's going to be another meeting and another discussion so or not. I, I'm, I actually need you to elaborate. Like, have you met someone, if we think of someone who didn't, who you just decided didn't have the right attitude, what did that look like? What, 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 was, what were they giving off that, that caused you concern? The, the, there are probably three farmers that we've met with that haven't been a good fit. And in all cases, their expectations were not realistic for how much work or how much resources need to be involved to do this well. Um, and it mostly comes down to what their what their dynamics are, what other things they've got on, whether their land is suitable. Um, but but really it's it's the attitude of wanting to do the best job they can. If it's somebody who's just looking to get farm status and is looking to kind of identify anything that'll help them get out of that that's not necessarily the best bet. Right. But somebody somebody who's got land that could be improved, and when they come and see our place, our neighboring land is exactly the same land as ours is, but they haven't been doing the system for the past 20 years, and so people who come to visit our place look at it, and we say, okay, that's what it looks like if we hadn't done any of this. This is what it looks like because we have. And... So the the system is that we go and visit the farmers that think that they would like to do this, and then they come and look at our place. And between those two conversations, you can pretty much tell if it's going to go any further or not. Right. Um, okay. Does that and, answer your question? Yeah, yeah sure. No, great. Uh, thank you. And I, I just uh, this last one's really a quick one. Um, the approximately how many of these relationships have you formed so far? Uh, we've got five we've had one farm drop out of the program okay and it didn't work for them because they were in a mixed 
um, mixed farming situation and under the organic rules, having the livestock um, in the way they were managing it didn't work. Right. There were there were limitations because of the organic system and also because of uh, the management system. And uh, so I was just curious, like, are any of those people who are leasing land or are these all landowners? Uh, those are all people who are landowners. Um, two of them are now running their own. They've got enough volume of their own market, basically by us contracting for everything they produced. They had the confidence to produce a little bit more and a little bit more until they were able to say, I think I've got enough market and I'll sell you a quarter of what I'm going to produce, but I've got enough market for three quarters of it. So we've had two farmers who were actually refining and developing their own businesses but still continue to use our processing and our feed and our and our method. So that again has been really really great within a fairly short period of time like within a year or two been able to to develop their own so market. if if a young couple came to you with the right attitude but that they wanted to base their model on leasing land in your area um would you would that be a deal breaker or do you think that's feasible under, you know, in terms of, in terms of what you know about pastured poultry and, and, and improving that the would, land over time? That would be, uh, that would be feasible. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I wouldn't have objections to that. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, Andrea, just before I say goodbye, um, I mean, you, you, you've told us about your farm. You're also, uh, an, an agricultural consultant. Do you want to just mention anything about that? It's up to you. Um, I guess that's one of the things that, that, has made this as successful is that I am an economist and I do work with other farmers that are not in this sector, but other farmers in just analyzing their business structure and what they could do better. And, and um, that definitely has helped in looking at our own, our own program and our own, I know, I know the realities of where you can save money and where you can make money and how good business decisions really affect the outcome in a very tangible way. <laughs> so that that has been helpful because I I have been an agricultural economist and consultant for over 20 years. I've seen a lot of different operations and some of them don't look profitable on the surface, but they can be profitable, and so it's a matter of having kind of an open mind when you're going through the operation, when you're looking at the field scope, and and then sitting down and actually looking at their books. Um, that's been very helpful to have that perspective and and to be able to bring that and share it with the with the people that we're working with. So how do how do people find you? Our farm our farm website is www.rosebankfarms.ca. And they can they can find it that way. Okay. Yep. Well, Andrea Gunner, thank you so much for sharing your insights uh, with my listeners. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks for the opportunity. My pleasure. All right. That's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. I should be back with you next week. And until then, happy farming. I'll let Vanessa take us out, and then I will let a 1990s Zellers commercial take us out. To make our final escape. All we'll need is each other a hundred dollars and maybe a roll of duct tape.
and we'll run right outside of the city's reaches. We'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches. We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves and live life like it was meant to be. trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and graces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be. Canada, your store's got it all. Take a look.